1: caregivers and most importantly the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery.
0: In this episode of Noggins and Neurons, Pete and I have the good pleasure of chatting with Mary Warren, PhD, OTRL. Dr. Warren has a specialty certification in low vision and is a fellow of the American Occupational Therapy Association. This is an honor that is given to a therapist who has demonstrated a significant contribution to the field of occupational therapy. Currently retired, she is Associate Professor Emerita of Occupational Therapy at the University University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Warren was one of the first OTs to study, publish, and speak about vision rehabilitation for adults with acquired brain injury. In 1993, she authored a framework for evaluation, and intervention for vision impairment known as the visual perceptual hierarchy. She published an assessment in 1998 that is widely used by OTs around the world, the Brain Injury Visual Assessment Battery for Adults. Mary has contributed chapters to several OT textbooks over the years and has lectured nationally and internationally to rehab professionals on vision impairment from acquired brain injury for 35 years. During her time on faculty at the University of Alabama, she developed and directed a post-professional online graduate certificate in low vision rehab for occupational therapists. This certificate prepares OT practitioners to work with older adults who have age-related eye disease as well as adults with acquired brain injury. Dr. Warren also provided clinical services to adults clients with vision impairment from acquired brain injury in the UAB Center for low vision rehab and served as associate director of the clinic until she retired. Dr. Warren currently teaches continuing education through a website titled VisAbilities Rehab Services. This is a little mom and pop company that she runs with her husband since the late 1990s.
2: very concerned about falling and running into something. If you have a hemianopia, you're going to have some collisions right off the bat, and they walk very slowly, or they do a a thing where they stare straight ahead and just walk toward the target and hope they make it. But these are dangerous types of things, and you can't get away with them when you're in dynamic environments. They don't keep you safe. So the person tends to avoid dynamic environments and won't go outside the house then because of the way they're moving. So we the big culprit for that. I guess that takes me off in a different direction. That's very a, a very interesting thing that the brain does is that when we're scanning our environment, when we're finding things, we don't go from object to object to build a visual scene. Instead, what our frontal lobes do is they sample the visual scene and then they perceptually complete it based on past experience with this environment and expectations of what you should see. By doing that, the, the frontal lobes allow us to process information very rapidly and move through environments that are very dynamic, like driving environments. What was discovered about hemianopia and the first research was published in the 1960s is that persons with hemianopia, where 50% of their vision is missing, actually exercise perceptual completion. So when you first experience a hemianopia, even though you're missing 50% of your vision, you feel like you see everything. You have a completed visual field in front of you. You don't have a border that tells you exactly where you have vision and where you don't have vision. There's no black curtain there. There's nothing to tell you when you are getting into the blind field or how far you should go into the blind field. puppy. He should be well taken care of. I also have an eight-year-old grandkid around here, so I've warned everybody not to bother me. Oh, (laughs) wow.
1: Okay. Well, that's... Those are
0: fun, though.
2: They are. The puppies
1: or the grandchildren?
0: Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, Deb and I would like to welcome vision expert, Dr. Mary Warren. Thanks so much for for showing up.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, no better way to spend your Friday evening. That's right. That's That's right. That's right. So, so if I... Can start out with a quick question. I get the feeling that you were the first person to dovetail OT with vision. How did that whole thing start? How did you make that connection, and then how did you build it into all kinds of information for all kinds of people?
2: Um, yeah, you're 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 right. I probably was really one of the very first health professionals, OT or PT, to start talking about vision and and the need for assessment, the need for And the path that I took toward it, I I think was mostly just um, when I graduated with my OT degree, the program that I graduated from was excellent, but it was very motor-based. It just focused on, on motor issues. And then I got my first job and it was working with persons who had stroke and traumatic brain injury. And I realized at that point they had more than just motor issues going on that was limiting their ability to do things. But that sort of sparked everything. And then I spent several years looking at it. And I was fortunate to have as a mentor Josephine Moore, who was an OT and a neuroanatomist and did a lot of teaching to OTs about um, an integration of the neuroanatomy of the brain and then the behaviors that we saw. So I had this connection with her and I started asking her about vision. And she found that a very interesting question too, because as a neuroanatomist and an OT, she should be thinking about it a lot, but really hadn't. So the two of us sort of started to look at that together. And then we decided to do a workshop on it and start sharing it with with other OTs. And it just kind of went from there. Part of my real interest in vision really ramped up my interest in vision really ramped up when I started a driving program. That was back in the day when we didn't have driver's evaluation programs, but the center that I worked at wanted to start one. So I was put in charge of that. And when you do driving and your primary group of of, um, people that you're working with have had a brain injury, then it becomes a real question about how well do they see. So all of it just sort of came together. And it's a fascinating area. And it It is so important to a person's ability to recover from brain injury and get back to doing the occupations that they want to do. And it has a very rich focus in research, so you there's always something new that you're learning something new that you're doing. To help myself understand it, I put together a framework, the Visual Perceptual Hierarchy Framework, and that was published way back in 1993. And that sort of became a framework for how to look at it and how we should assess it and how we should provide an intervention. So it sort of had an organic growth
0: I guess. How many people experience vision deficits um, following a stroke well, yeah. or a brain injury?
2: Right, because most of us overlook it when we're working with clients and we don't realize that it's it's even happening. It's, it's much more common than you think. Oculomotor problems, for example, are very common. The statistic is about 50 to 90% was looking up statistics today to to help the audience understand what the issues are. They expect that about 50 to to 70% of people with a brain injury, either from a traumatic brain injury or from a stroke, are going to experience some form of change in their ability to use their eyes together. Much more common in traumatic brain injury, a little less common in stroke, but but way more common than you would think it would be. And the stroke statistics are about 50% have eye movement problems. And um, the other changes that we see that are very, very common are changes in visual field. So the most common change is a hemianopia where a person loses half of their vision in each eye. And those statistics, again, we see them for TBI, but we also see them for stroke. For stroke, it's thought that about 50% of people, depending on the research that you're looking at, will experience some sort of visual field deficit. It can be a hemianopia, it could be a quadrantinopia, a quadrant is lose a quarter of the visual field in each eye, hemianopia is lose half, but that really is a, a large number of people who have it particularly because visual field deficits tend to be permanent vision losses. They're considered to be the only low vision condition that's produced by a brain injury. So we're talking about a person losing half of their vision permanently um, and at a rate of about, again, 50%, depending on where the lesions are occurring in the person. Then we also see changes in acuity. So acuity is related to reading. And those are actually not a lot of big changes in that. I mean, in terms of statistics, about 25% of people will have Uh, impaired acuity during their early recovery, but it's multifactorial. It can be they don't have their glasses with them, or it can be they have an age-related eye disease that wasn't diagnosed, or something else like that. And then the last big one is is changes in the ability to visually attend, specifically neglect, which can be as high as 70% in people who are just in the first few days to first few weeks of recovery from um, a middle cerebral artery stroke in the right hemisphere. So I'm. I suspect if you have worked with people who have brain injuries, these statistics kind of shock you that we're seeing that, that high of number of impairment. And part of the issue with vision is that it creates a hidden disability. When you see somebody who's had a stroke that has caused hemiplegia, it's real easy to see that the motor deficit is there. They can't move their arm. They can't move their leg. Or if they're having a change in their speech, they don't talk talk, they don't understand speech and they don't speak correctly. But a person with a vision impairment really just looks like a person without a vision impairment. There are no outward signs to it for most people. And so it's really easy to attribute the behaviors that are associated with vision impairment to other behaviors, particularly changes in cognition and changes in motor function, because vision subserves both of those. Uh, We use our visual system for most of our Decision making because we see objects in our environment and we see um, faces and we see other cues that, that cue us to make certain decisions. And motor is the same way our visual system is always out ahead of us, 10 feet, 100 yards, telling us what we're going to be encountering next. So it helps to keep us upright in space and. It also draws our attention to things that we might want to interact with. So when you have an impairment in vision, you see a change in motor behavior, and you see a change in cognitive behavior. Because you don't see <laughs> a change in their vision, they, they look the same to you, um, then you often attribute it to something else. And for that reason, vision deficits are often not uncovered early in recovery. They tend to be um, diagnosed and uncovered after the person has regained other abilities regained motor function regained uh Regain better attention and cognitive function, and all of a sudden, it becomes apparent that they have a vision impairment that's been going on probably since day one.
1: If a therapist, what 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 do you think would be the first for an OT or a PT or any clinician? What do you think the what should they be looking for that would indicate some sort of visual deficit? Is it nystagmus? Are they not there no saccades? Like what 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 would usually be the first symptom, or is it as varied as the brain injuries can be varied?
2: It's varied as the brain injuries can be varied. It's pretty easy to see nystagmus in a client. Um, It's pretty easy to see if there's an eye turn um, and some of those types of things. It's very difficult to see a visual field deficit. In fact, the person themselves usually is not aware that they have a visual field deficit until several weeks into their recovery. It's something they have to discover. So, we look at certain behaviors That are associated with vision loss. And unfortunately, these behaviors are also associated with cognitive impairment. Like one of the big behaviors associated with vision loss is slowness, because we use our visual system to keep us on top of things. And, and um, your visual system's always integrating your sense of the world around you and doing all those things. And when you impair the vision, then the person suddenly can't see a face well, or they can't see objects well, and they slow down in how they respond. And they may get very anxious, in environments where they're they're not seeing well. So they get that kind of behavior going on as well. So they're slow in responding. They're anxious, particularly when they get in crowded environments. They tend to rely on other people for their decision-making. They become a little bit more passive. And so they're afraid of making a mistake or not sure on how to proceed. So they ask another person to do it. Those are all behaviors that we would see with the person who had frontal injuries in a traumatic brain injury. So you have to assess. Uh, Visual screening should be as routine as any other screening that we do with the client. It's a core assessment. Start with visual acuity and always look at visual acuity first to make sure the person really can see and respond to things and then look for clinical behaviors that suggest other areas of deficit and assess them as well. The piece that's missing a lot right now and has been for Decades in neural rehab is this. This is is looking at vision as a core assessment. Is one of the first things you're going to look at, and you're always going to assess
0: certain components of it. I feel like a student again.
1: We are students. Okay. <laughs> it, it only lasts your whole life, so don't worry about
0: it. Okay, that's good. Um, oh, I have a lot, so I wonder if we could talk a lot, if we could talk a little bit about um. Let, let me is the,
1: is that the puppy or is that the grandchild?
0: And the door was left open, and
2: <laughs> so hang on one second. Take okay.
1: your time. Keep
2: them
1: out. Visual field cuts are permanent. Did you know that? I did. You did. You I did you knew that, and did that's not that. neuroplastically. You can't get that back neuroplastically.
0: It's to, well, some people do spontaneously recover from my experience, but not. It's
2: very small, the recovery from visual field deficit.
0: Yeah.
2: Like 50% of people will get some recovery in the first four weeks, but the chance of fully recovering the field is about 10% of people can get a full recovery of visual field. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's just, it's the pathway from the eyes into the cortex, straight across the middle part of the brain. It's not polysynaptic. It's a highway that goes from one end to the other. And if you blow up a bridge on that highway, it's hard to get anything. I see. There are no other ways into the cortex, or there are other other ways into the cortex, but nothing like like this visual pathway. So they tend to be permanent, although they've been studying how to restore the visual field for a few decades now, trying to figure out what kind of um, treatment protocol might improve vision when they have an epic
0: side they haven't been successful yet but they keep working at it hmm. so you mentioned that assessment that of vision deficits is still lacking in in the probably in stroke rehab or stroke centers and i'm i'm kind of curious about that i'm wondering why because i know that that's um it's been a big topic at at the hospital that i worked at but i'm wondering if that's just because i happen to be lucky here where i live and we have two vision rehab physicians
2: that makes a difference if you are teaming with an optometrist, particularly. Then you're gonna you're gonna cover that area. But I think largely it just it's a matter of tradition and habit, right? Mm. Um, in occupational therapy preparation programs, there's no standard that students be taught about vision impairment or low vision. So if you're at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I'm at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I'm part of that faculty you're going to get that education as part of your graduate education. But if you're in another school, you may not get it at all. And then a a hospital or a center has to have a tradition of providing that kind of assessment. So, they vary, right? So, we'd like to get to a point where every OT in, in the preparatory courses would be trained to do a vision assessment, but it's really hit or miss at this point. And so, that means that you get that kind of education either in your job site or as postgraduate continuing education. And that can be real hit or miss too. So it's just kind of a loop in the system that a lot of us have been trying to close now for a long time. <laughs> We're making inroads, but there's a lot of work to be done.
1: This is a, a left quick left turn. Can you discuss maybe a little bit about hemianopsia and unilateral neglect, do they necessarily go together? I think I assume they did. And then I think Deb actually corrected me on this and said, sometimes they separate and they're not related. Uh, Can you nail that to the wall for me so I don't get confused again?
2: I would be happy to do that. They are, first of all, two completely different conditions. So, uh, hemianopia, visual field loss is a primary sensory loss. Input is not getting in to the brain from the retina and the brain doesn't have any information to process. So, you hemi means one half and anopsia means blind and that's hemi- hemianopsia. Neglect is an attentional deficit. It's a cognitive deficit that has to do with your ability to attend in your environment to to seek resources and find information. And it has a lateral bias to it because it tends to be most obvious when it occurs with the right hemisphere of brain injury and the person is in a to the left side. And we see more of that with right hemisphere because it's very obvious impairment there. Even though right neglect is a, is possible and does occur, it's just more subtle in how it occurs. So one's an attentional deficit, that, that cognitive in nature, and the other is a primary sensory loss. You get a nice big injury in the middle part of your brain, the middle cerebral artery stroke, and you can get both of those areas together. And when you get them together, what you're going to do is Push neglect to its edges, you're going to make it much more extreme. So, I might be mildly inattentive to my left side because of my neglect. And then I have a left homonymous hemianopia and I become extremely um, inattentive to that left side. So, when the two occur together, it's always a worst, worst case scenario for the person. It makes it much more difficult for them to attend more to that left side because I just lost one of their major sensory systems that allows them to attend but they are separate conditions they're not the same
1: deb you were right
2: (laughs) good ot that you are you're right hey
1: everybody i wanted to talk to you about something that's really important recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's strongerafterstroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple, strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right.
0: I'm just going to keep asking more more questions here. So sometimes we might see a person who has an extreme gaze preference towards one side. What does this mean in terms of these two different deficits that we're talking about? Does it mean anything or nothing?
2: Usually, if you see that by extreme gaze preference, you mean that their head and their eyes are turned in one direction. Is yes. You- and
0: the, yeah, and they can't, They they maybe bring their eyes to midline, maybe they don't they they can't really turn their head towards the, the other direction. Yeah.
2: That's um that's a sign of neglect. That's an early sign. So though typically that challenge where the person's eyes and head are turned towards that um towards the towards the right side, away from the left, usually occurs very acutely. So you're going to, if you work in acute care, you're going to see it the first few days that the client is recovering from stroke up to the first few weeks. But then it generally gets better and the person stops that behavior. If they continue that behavior beyond a few weeks, that's not a good sign for a lot of rehab potential because it's an indication there's been a lot of, of brain injury. But doctors use it. They look for it. In acute stages of right hemisphere injuries,
0: and see it as a sign that the client will have neglect. Thanks. That clears up some questions (laughs) I had (laughs) now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the types of vision impairments that respond best to therapies that are directed more towards restoring performance.
2: Okay, yeah, good topic. Two, we have the oculomotor system that's very plastic, and we have the attention system that's very plastic. So, oculomotor issues usually get better. They, they, it's unusual if they don't, and it's usually an indication there's been a lot of structural damage if they don't, because this system runs on really complex pathways that have um, just tie all these different areas of the brain together. And we're talking about cortical structures with cerebellar structures with with the brainstem and running in these pathways. And that means that oculomotor and eye movements are vulnerable when a person has a brain injury, particularly traumatic brain injury where the head is shaking because of pathway damage. But it also means that there's so much pathway and so much connectivity that the person has a really good chance of improving their vision over time. So the oculomotor system is one system that's very plastic. And the attentional system is kind of the same way. We have all these different areas of the brain that contribute to our ability to attend. And so we we see, you know, in again, traumatic brain injury with pathway damage or stroke with structural damage, we'll see one area, of the network isn't working well with the others, but we have all this other network that can, again, take up the slack and, and help. So the actual motor system is the one that is probably most studied at this point because of a disagreement between ophthalmology and optometry. You have ophthalmology feeling like we just need to look at the natural recovery, the natural plasticity of the system. There's no type of intervention that will cause the person to recover better, faster. We just need to wait and let things take their time. And then if something at six or nine months is still hanging around, then we'll Will address it. And you have optometry with a completely different point of view that feels that you can increase the speed of recovery and um, improve a lot of the person's capability of doing things through the use of lenses and prisms and exercises. So we have these two kind of opposing groups. The optometrists are the ones who do vision therapy, this kind of technique, these, the, um, trying to reestablish a binocularity. Is System and push the system to improve faster, and they have been criticized for a very long time for not having any evidence base to what they're doing, and so they get discounted a lot, and and they are. Um, their therapy is not covered. Vision therapy is not covered, and it, it makes it very hard for them to specialize in this area and to work with persons with brain injury and, and make a, a living doing it. But they they have taken on this issue and have really, in the last twenty years, worked very very hard to start establishing a evidence base. For what they, the techniques that they know work and help the clients see better and reduce their visual stress and, and help them use their eye movements better, which always leads to better reading and, and cognitive abilities. There's one group in particular, State University of New York, SUNY, under the, the lab that's under Ken Kafrida, who is one of um, the leading researchers in this area, that has just made it their mission to start putting evidence to the techniques that they use. Use. And I hope that as they do this and they answer the challenge that ophthalmology puts out by saying, don't, you don't need to do anything, it will just get better, it won't, never probably get better. They will start to be integrated a lot more into therapy programs and we'll have better access to them. And ultimately, hopefully, they'll get coverage for what they do. And then they can really, I think, further the interventions that they're working on. So you have a couple of, you said you had a couple of um. My doctors in your setting, right, Deb?
0: They're not in my setting, but they're in, in my area. But there is one doctor that we constantly refer to um, at the hospital that I worked at.
2: And he's an optometrist, I assume, right?
0: Yes, they yeah. both are. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so they've chosen to either specialize in neuro or they've added it to their regular practice so that they'll see persons with brain injury. Mm-hmm. And th- I, it's value added. If you've referred to him, you already know that. It's, there's nothing better than working with a really good
0: optometrist. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> mean, yeah. they've done Continuing education for us. And, you know, I think that maybe I've taken some of this for granted, but if I didn't ever have any training from them, I don't think I would know what to do with a person who had a vision problem or um, an attention problem. So at least I had some tools in my toolbox.
2: Right. Yeah. Optometry is a natural partner for occupational therapy. And one of the reasons why is because of how they're trained. They're um, eye doctors, but they're not physicians. The ophthalmologist is the physician, the medical doctor. And ophthalmologists and optometrists are both trained in um, how to, you know, How has vision changed and what can be done to improve um, vision? What can be done medically to improve vision and will the person get better? Will their vision get better? So they both kind of answer that question. What happened and will it get better? But optometry in their training has this additional plant on training, this additional perspective that they're taught, where they always ask the question, what can we do to make it better? Would lenses make it better? Would prisms make it better? Would eye exercises make it better? It's how do we improve it now? Where the ophthalmologist is great at consulting, he can tell you what happened, he can tell you if it's going to get better, but he's done at that point or she's done at that point. They don't give you any further direction into your rehab program. They feel like that's your job to do that. Where an optometry Sees you more as a colleague, somebody that they're going to discuss this case with, and you're going to try different things with. So they make great partners for occupational therapy and physical therapy. They give us a lot more of what we need than ophthalmology does. And I'm not knocking ophthalmology. It's just a different (laughs) profession. But our challenge is we don't have a lot of them you know, that are doing neuro and really well-trained in neuro because, again, they don't get paid for vision therapy. It's hard for them. They have to have another practice that's supporting it or they have to be academic in some way in order to do that. What we've been trying to do over decades is add them to rehab teams so that they become a part of our team and get paid that way and then are right there to consult with us on the clients we see and that is the best model but it's a model that takes time to implement and um you know there's financial considerations and other things so you're lucky that you've got two in your area and i know they make a big difference yeah
0: they do so when you were talking about using prisms and different strategies to help along the way, are those rehabilitative? Are they compensatory? Do they um, weave in and out between the two?
2: It, well, some are compensatory and some of them are rehabilitative. Vision therapy, by definition, is is rehabilitative. It's rest, the, the emphasis is restoration. The, the optometrist is attempting to get the eyes to work better together. And there are techniques that are a little more compensatory. Like if you have somebody who is very light sensitive, they one of the big challenges with oculomotor problems is that this pathway damage that causes the oculomotor problem also causes some co-impairments. Two big ones are light sensitivity and, and um, post-traumatic headache, headache migraine type headache. And they kind of team together <laughs> and make a person's life just absolutely miserable because everything they do with their vision triggers their headache and then their day's over at that point. And every time, you know, they're very sensitive to all types of lighting and that causes them to avoid a lot of environments and going places. So the tech- techniques that we use for light sensitivity are compensatory, using filters and changing out the type of light and moving away from terrible fluorescent lighting that triggers headache and, and makes photosensitivity worse and substituting LED lighting and halogen lighting and then using filters that fit over their glasses and other techniques to kind of titrate that light and dampen it down so they're not so sensitive to it. And that's compensatory, so it's a combination of different techniques that are used, but vision therapy, by definition, is restorative.
0: Pete, we asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices, and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have, although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know just just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that?
1: That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is, and it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot and yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20% is going to go to the...
0: The Brain Injury Association of America?
1: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
0: It sounds like a nice organization and I'm glad that you told me about it.
1: Yep, we wanna support all people that have had brain injury and we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons.
0: Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm. That's true. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Can you give us your most interesting case study? From soup to nuts, you meet the guy, you figure something out, and then you do something for treatment, and what is that thing that you did for treatment? And let's make it a happy story, something that really worked, worked well. Or it could be an amalgam of a lot of patients. What does the therapist see, and then how do they react to it? What's the granular part of an occupational therapist working with a patient?
2: answer it this way. The client that we can make the greatest success with and often get all the way back to driving in a really high level performance is that client who has the hemianopia. But if they receive therapy from us, and they're taught how to understand the change in their vision, and how to compensate for it, and they can just really, really go far. But if they don't get that therapy, then there's research that shows that they adopt horrible habits, that keep them from doing activities. Basically, they become very avoidant to certain environments because they get very anxious in those environments. They won't go out. They adapt by living at home. And never going out in a community environment and, and other things. So that's the client that we can get the the greatest change in their quality of life with the least amount of therapy. Because if you just have eight weeks, one time a week with a client with a hemianopia, you can get them all the way back to the level where they can resume driving. Now that depends. It depends on how many other things are going on with that client, but um, the The type of stroke that causes most hemianopia is the posterior cerebral artery stroke. And those strokes have, they come oftentimes with subtle language deficits and some other things, but they don't cause the catastrophic stroke of the middle cerebral artery, the catastrophic loss, losses that we see there. So they're the client that I have the most feel for in the sense that it angers me they don't get rehab because there's so much that we can do to get them back out going to restaurants going to church going back to their job reading again a lot of times they have very significant challenges in reading that are related to their vision loss but there are there are evidence based techniques to improve that we can get them back to driving and there's an evidence based in fact that they can resume driving and really Get a high-level quality of life. So I feel that it's really sad when therapists miss that, when they, they don't provide that kind of intervention for a client because they're just cutting off
1: their life to just not letting them get as far as they could with it is there like a this is probably a completely ignorant question but you may as well get used to it because i don't know anything about this subject is is there a go-to sort of treatment um if somebody has hemiparesis and they're having trouble walking typically you go to gait training i know that's ridiculously simple simplified um what kinds of things might an ot do with somebody that has um hemianopia. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. What would be like, just, is there a basket of treatment options or how's that work?
2: Um, there, well, there's kind of a protocol for how you provide intervention with them. Um, their problems tend to fall in two big areas. They have difficulty with reading if the field cut comes all the way into the fovea. So, the fovea is your your very center of your your retina and it's it gives you your acute reading that you your acute vision that you need for reading. And when a hemianopia occurs, if it comes into the fovea, it significantly disrupts reading by shortening what's called a perceptual span. And perceptual span is a little window that you move from word to word as you read, and it helps you decode the word, and it helps you stay online line on text and go across. So when a person has a hemianopia, that comes into the phobia they have difficulty reading. It's not a language issue it's a visual issue where they cannot get enough visual information to read smoothly and they have to do a lot of repressions and they they read very slowly and they make a lot of mistakes when they read and they just eventually give up reading because it's so frustrating to do it. So that's one issue their other issue tends to be, mobility, because the deficit is affecting the peripheral visual field. They have challenges with orientation and staying oriented when they're moving. And they have challenges just feeling safe as they move and monitoring the people around them. They adopt some horrible habits, like shoegazing is one of them where they look at their feet when they're walking because they're very concerned about falling and running into something. If you have a hemianopia, you're going to have some collisions right off the bat and they walk very slowly or they do a a thing where they stare straight ahead and just walk toward the target and hope they make it. But these are dangerous types of things and you can't get away with them when you're in dynamic environments. They don't keep you safe. So the person tends to avoid dynamic environments and won't go outside the house then because of the way they're moving. So we, that the big culprit for that, I guess that takes me off in a different direction. That's very, a, a very interesting thing that the brain does is that when we're scanning our environment, when we're finding things, we don't go from object to object to build a visual scene. Instead, what our frontal lobes do is they sample the visual scene and then they perceptually complete it based on past experience with this environment and expectations of what you should see. By doing that, the the frontal lobes allow us to process information very rapidly and move through environments that are very dynamic, like driving environments. What Was discovered about hemianopia, and the first research was published in the 1960s. Is that persons with hemianopia, where 50% of their vision is missing, actually exercise perceptual completion? So when you first experience a hemianopia, even though you're missing 50% of your vision, you feel like you see everything. You have a completed visual field in front of you. And you only. Is that
1: good news or is that bad news? Or is it. it, Mix.
2: It's bad news news. for, for learning to live with a hemianopia because you don't have a border that tells you exactly where you have vision and where you don't have vision. There's no black curtain there. There's nothing to tell you when you are getting into the blind field or how far you should go into the blind field. So what happens is that you start running into things, things pop out in your, you know, you're walking along and all of a sudden there's a chair that pops into your field of view because you've gotten close enough to it, but you haven't been seeing it all along. You stumble, you collide, and you start to feel very uncomfortable in walking and you start to put your head down and walk more slowly and avoid busy environments because they make you very nervous and that type of thing. And you have very disrupted and slow scanning towards the blind side, towards the hemianopic side. So it's pretty much universal that everybody experiences this. And experiences it this way. So when we begin therapy, we start by talking about perceptual completion, which to, it Instantly connects with the client usually because they're like oh my god I get it now you know and and then we start training them to scan wider and to move their head more and to use their attention to pay more attention to what's over on that side that they have to be able to scan both sides because we orient that way so we can do a lot of activities where we really um, force them to use their vision more quickly that's where light boards become Um, incredibly useful. The the BioNest Integrated Therapy System, the BITS, the DynaVision, the um, Vision Coach, and some of these other training devices become very helpful because they just increase speed. And we teach them techniques to scan while they're walking, purposefully do that. Because it's a primary deficit, usually their attentional system is good and they can compensate for that. So that's one area that we address. And then simultaneously We address their reading issues either by improving their ability to read, and there's a kind of a set um, protocol that you go through that's been shown to improve reading accuracy, or by using assistive technology with them to eliminate their need for reading a lot of things. And when you address these twin problems for the client, and you also modify their environment to just make their environment work better for them. So you remove clutter and you increase light and you add contrast so they've got a much more visible environment. And all three of those things come together. You often have a client, again, who's going to resume driving, who's going to resume working, who's going to, you know, do all of their activities of daily living on their own and just have this happy life. And you just bring those pieces together.
1: We think that probably about 40% of the people that listen to this podcast, I don't know, it's a broad estimate, are OTs. And then um, we have people that have had brain injury. We know we do have that and caregivers and some PTs scattered in there. You mentioned NovaVision and then a Bioness Integrated Vision, is that what it's called?
2: Well, Bioness Integrated Therapy System, these are big light boards that um, are touch boards and they'll have games playing on them. So think of a big board in front of you that's interactive and uh, therapists use them. I don't know, Deb, if you're, if you're familiar with them I mean, therapists use them. For balance training and for upper extremity, but for vision and for cognition, they're good because they, they um, challenge the person's working memory and their ability to search and find and that kind of thing. So programs that do a lot of rehab see a lot of people with visual field deficits and, and that type of thing often have invested in a light board like this. So think of them as an interactive computerized light board. And there are several different companies that make different types, but they all operate pretty much the same. They're very dynamic. They're they're on they run on a game mode. They stay slightly ahead of you and they push you faster and faster. And you have to they're big and you have to turn your head and you have to search very automatically in very quickly. So they really push the system to be faster and they push the person to um, in their attempt to get a good score on whatever game they're playing on the lightboard, they're they're just starting to scan much more automatically to their involved side. They're wonderful. They were really a game changer in training persons with visual field deficits because they are demanding and dynamic so they are an excellent tool for doing that kind of work with this this type of
1: client so um i'm, I'm wondering because we know how many thousands of repetitions it takes to reestablish cortical control right. over yeah. over a, a variety of movements um, are there any online things or video games or is the screen just too darn small because no vision takes up a whole wall, right. Right? right? And you're forced to go different directions or do the video games just not, not applicable?
2: You need a wide screen and um, it kind of depends on what you're doing. Like they, they've they been able to develop computerized programs that work well to work on reading in persons with Emmy and Nopia. And um, there are two research groups in England that actually give you free access to their their training programs. If you're a person with a hemianopia, they give you free access to their training program. They take your data and they look at your data as you're doing their program, but they give you free access to it and allow you to practice. And that research, the reading research has shown that it is exactly what you say, Peter. It's a lot of repetition over a period of time. We're talking about 20 or 30 minutes over several weeks. And they can see an improvement in reading speed and um, accuracy in reading when the person does that. Reading is kind of fascinating because this is a vision deficit that the person has. And and what has happened is the hemianopia has narrowed their field of view and the brain has to adapt its eye search, its decayed pattern to this smaller field that the person now has. But that's okay, because when we learn to read as children, we are also learning to adapt a saccade pattern (laughs) to our field of view. And so this is driven by the prefrontal areas of the brain. And we spend a lot of years learning to read, and we come... Become fluent in about fourth grade. We start to read in a much more fluent manner. And so if you think about just kids, that's how much repetition they need to get there, is four years of education. So when you're reteaching a person to read and you're trying to increase their reading speed and their fluency and their comfort in reading, they're gonna have to put in a lot of practice. They're gonna have to commit to a year of practice in order to really see a significant improvement in the way that they read. But you know, not everybody will do it, but readers, people who love to read, who valued that, who lost it because of their stroke are willing to put in that time a lot of times and they can improve because the prefrontal areas of the brain, great neuroplasticity. They've done this once before. You just got to unlearn how you did it when you had a wider field of view and adapted to the new one. And changes the cued pattern.
1: Is the system at University College London? Is that the, the one that yeah. that does it? I have one that I've had on my blog forever, and this
2: is the it's Read called right. Rewrite right Program. I got is iSearch. An, I don't know what iSearch is, but the Rewrite Program. I don't know. I don't recall what university it's. It's um, with Ong, Ong I think was a. Um, Author on the first article. So you have ReadWrite and then you have DREX. And DREX stands for Durham Reading and Exploration. It's also a website, it's also um, from the Brits and it's also a free program. So you have Drex and you have ReadWrite. I think if you put either one of them in a search engine, you'd come up with.
1: Is it DREX?
2: DREX is Drex.
1: Yeah, we're going to need that. We're going to need that link, Deb. We're going to have to do the cool. research on because well, that I... sounds like a good tool.
2: Yeah, they are good tools. And what makes them great is that they're they're free. So you have a person, the challenge with us in working with a client who wants to resume reading is getting a, enough practice time in because it's repetition that's going to teach them how to do this. And so having those computerized programs helps get that practice in. Not everybody can put that in that time. It's frustrating to do it, and it's time-consuming, so a lot of people can't do it. And that's where we live in a golden age of assistive technology now, where literally you can avoid reading. You can get around it in so many different ways. So there's a solution either way for the person. Would you also say that it's fatiguing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whenever the visual system is involved, it's, it's fatiguing. Fatigue is a huge issue you're putting in so much effort trying to use your vision and find things that's where adapting an environment simplifying an environment and making it more visible is a gift to the to the person because when everything is structured and everything is visible they don't have to just put as much effort into seeing all the time and they are not so tired at the end of the day and they can enjoy some of the other activities that they would typically avoid
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.